Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church. Thank you for being here. Uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? If you would like to follow along with the reading and you need a Bible, they can be found in the seatbacks in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can take this one with you. Or if you know someone that needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. Uh, we would love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, and that can be found on page 973. Follow along with me as I read. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this church, and thank you for Pastor Jason, and pray that you would speak through him this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts and open our ears to hear what you would have to say, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. My very first truck was a 1976, long before the 2005 Ford Freestar uh, minivan that I rock today. There was a 1976. uh, We have two minivans at our house. We totally look like Mormons or something. I don't know. But uh, we're just Baptist. That's all. And we're doing our part to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I always get asked, do you all know what causes that? People think they're so smart. And I'm always like, yes, and we're for it. It's in the Bible. Uh, Anyways, that being said, yeah, I said all that to say this. My first truck was, isn't that a preacher thing to say? I said all that to say this. Uh, My first truck was a 76 uh, Chevrolet Silverado. And it was red, silver, and rust. It had a hole in the floorboard on the passenger side, which made my date life awesome. So when Carrie was just dating me or my girlfriend, she would sit right beside me. And I know people were like, my goodness, they're inseparable. And she's like, I'm just trying not to lose my flip-flops through his floorboard. I would hammer out coffee cans. Remember when coffee cans were actually cans? I'd hammer them suckers out and put them over there, but I'd always lose one on a fishing trip or something. Anyways, and so the way that I knew that that truck needed oil in it is it would tell me. I'd be driving down the highway, and it would go, and I would pull off into a gas station and find whatever 10W40 they had, and I'd put a little bit in there to get me down the road. And so now that my first couple churches I ever pastored were a lot like that truck. So they were indestructible. I wasn't going to break the church. I wasn't going to harm the church. Um, you know, it, but I might not be able to make change as fast as I wanted to go. Uh, and that was just kind of the way it was. I had a group of deacons that when I would come up with ideas, they're like, you could do that. And that might be the last thing you ever did as the pastor of our church. So I was like, well, that's not what I'm trying to do. I got all these kids I'm trying to feed. So let's work out a deal. Let's make a deal. And so in planting a branch, so, so for example, uh, when I pastored an existing church that was several decades old, uh, I pastored a church of 100 people in a town of 1,000 people in a county of 6,000 people. It was very small. But our membership role would be like 500, 600 people. 
And I was like, where are these people? They're like, we don't know. They may be in witness protection. We haven't seen or heard from them in years. Some of them live in California. Some of them live in Maryland. Like, we don't know. They might be dead for all we know. And I always thought as a pastor, because we were a congregational model government in that church, and I always thought, what if someone just called everybody up and said, do y'all want to make it really weird for the pastor at the next business meeting? Let's all show up and vote to change the name of that church. Heck, we can decide what denomination it's going to be if we just get the majority of the votes. And I always thought, this is a bad idea. So then as we planted a church from scratch, it was like not having the 76 Silverado anymore. It was like having a new shiny race car. I could go as fast as I wanted to go and might die, you know? So I didn't have anybody telling me, hey, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So it made me a little bit more conservative. But one of the things I'm so proud of about Grace Point Church is that we do covenant membership at our church. And so covenant membership doesn't mean that we're going to cut our hands and spit in our palm and shake each other's hands like, till death, we die. You know, not like that. It's not like we're going to check your W-2s like we're Mormon to see how much money you give to the church if you're a member here or anything like that. Some of you are like, thank you so much. You know, because church hurt. Anyways, that being said, what it means is we wanted to use church membership. If we're going to have it, we are. It means that we're family here. We're devoted to one another. We're committed to this church. I want to be accountable for this church and responsible to this church. It was important to me to know who am I an elder of? Who am I a pastor of? And the reason we have covenant membership is I go, oh, I know I'm that person's pastor for sure. As a minister, we'll minister to anybody who comes to this church, but I at least know I'm accountable to Jesus for these people who will say in covenant, I'm your pastor. So covenant relationships are different, or I'm your, I'm your people, you're my pastor. Covenant relationships are different than contractual relationships. Contractual relationships are like I'm living my life and buying gas right now. I'm a Costco guy right now because that's the cheapest gas. But if fries comes in 10 cents cheaper, I'm a fries guy. I've got cards at both places. So I, I hit my Gas Buddy app, I look and see where the cheapest gas is, and I go get the gas. That's how I grocery shop. Where are the ribeyes on sale at? That's where I'm buying ribeyes. So church is not like that. Marriage is certainly not like that. And I'm willing to say, like, I'm, we're not trying to be your spouse. There's levels and layers of covenant. So for example, if you live in an HOA, you have a covenant. Your covenant says when you bring your trash cans in. It says no weeds in your yard. It says how many plants have to be in your yard. It says a lot of stuff. I don't even know if we're free anymore as Americans because of the HOA, but... But I'll get over it. I grew up redneck. I'm still, we used to like cars would die and we would put them in the yard and the grass would grow and you didn't see the car anymore. <laughs> That's how we lived our life. Johnson grass saved us, you know. Anyways, it's not that way here and we want to be good missionaries. So we pull our weeds or hire landscapers. That's what I have chosen to do. Anyways, that being said. That's where church memberships come from for us is this idea of covenant that we'll move toward you even if you stay home. Like you're, we're family here until you say, hey, I don't want to be family here if you're a covenant member of our church. And that is rooted in the idea of covenant that comes out of the scriptures. So God's people live in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus and he saved us to the church which, which is a covenant type relationship with one another. And so we're going to pull that out of Galatians 3. Uh, so the, the situation that we have in Paul's day and the problem that he's trying to solve is there was a group of people who were holding on very tight to the Mosaic Covenant. 
that God spoke to Moses, and he did. And he gave him Ten Commandments, and he gave him a law. He gave him the Levitical law, and he said, this is how my people will live different than everyone else around us. And in the New Testament, they held on to that covenant so much that they said they joined those covenants together with the new covenant of grace under Jesus and said, yeah, Jesus is our basically our priest now, but we still need to be circumcised if we're men. We still need to stay away from pork. We still need to live under those laws of the Old Testament. And Paul is writing to say, no, 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 no. You guys have got confused into thinking that God is pleased with us through our behavior, but God is pleased with us through our belief. Our behavior is rooted in our belief, not the other way around. And he's going to do some work today. We're going to get pretty theological in the sermon to do the work to show how there's at least five covenants in the Bible, and it begins with a promise that's kind of a sixth covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve. Some people say there's even more than that. But there's at least five that uses the language of God making a covenant with people. And Paul is doing the work to show that all of those covenants bring into focus and make clear the promise that God has made with his people. That it's not the behavior found in the covenant that makes God pleased with us. It is the revelation and response of faith in the promise that makes God pleased with us. So if you've ever wondered why we do revelation and response in our worship service, I'll preach first and then we sing because we want to respond to what we think God has said to us through the opening of his word. So we see that all throughout scripture. We see God reveal himself to Abraham and then Abraham respond in faith. God speaks to Moses, Moses responds in faith. And hopefully God speaks to you and you will respond in faith. So look with me in Galatians 3.15. Paul is making his argument. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant. So he's saying there's God-to-man covenants, and then there's man-to-man covenants. God-to-man are these covenants we'll talk about. Man-to-man would be like your HOA. It would, and then there's like man-to-God and to man. That would be like your marriage. That's that kind of covenant. You're saying before God and these people, till death do us part, sickness and health, you know, less insulated, more insulated, however you want to look at that. That's the covenant that you've made. And so he says, even in a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So it's not like a pickup game of basketball with your brother. It's not like, now the wall is out of bounds. No, it's not when I have the ball. You got to pass it in first or all that. You know, my shots are two points. Your shots are one point. Who, who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah, siblings. Ugh. So covenants uh, begin with this promise that God made to Adam and Eve. In the very beginning, our first parents, Adam and Eve, dropped the world and broke it. They disobeyed God. Sin entered the world. We're sinners now by nature and choice. I'll get there in a minute and flesh that out. But Adam and Eve sinned against God, and then God showed up and said, man, your work is going to be really hard. It'll rise up against you. Woman, the baby that's a blessing in your life is going to hurt. When you give birth and snake, you're going to be on your belly. Satan, you're going to be on your belly. And then a promise that an offspring would come, a child would be born through humanity that would crush the head of the serpent. This is the proto-evangelion. This is the first time the gospel is ever preached in the scriptures. So God makes that promise with Adam and Eve. So they're in exile. They're pushed out of the Garden of Eden. Angel guards the garden. They go live now in a broken, fallen, sin-filled world. Okay, And so the promise to them was by faith, they believed that that, man, that son would be born through humanity. So we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6. And then God looks at all humanity and he's like, man, they're bad. They're so dang bad. I'm going to unplug them for 30 seconds and reboot all mankind through Noah and his family. 
So he does. He shows up. He reveals himself to Noah, to Noah and says, Noah, build a big old boat. Put your family in there because I'm going to pour wrath out on the world. I'm judging them for their sin. You will be spared, you and your family, if you'll do what I say to do. So he builds the big boat. He puts his family in there. And here's that helpful imagery whenever Paul will say this in a minute, that we are in Jesus, like Noah's family in the ark. Below the waterline is God's wrath. Above the waterline is God's grace. That is a picture of wrath and mercy that God's wrath on the world, God's mercy on his people, and his people were those who believed what God said. They did what they did because they believed that it was going to be true. So that's called the Noahic covenant. God, after the floods, God shows up and says, I make a covenant with you, Noah. And the big idea of that covenant is I'll never destroy the world like this again. So there'll be a baby born to humanity, and the world will never be destroyed like it is again, and there's a rainbow in the sky for you to see that that is my promise, and no matter how many flash floods we get through the monsoon season, well, it, it has been a fantastic monsoon season. I guess it depends on how you look at it. I've enjoyed it. But no matter how high the floods rise, the whole world will not go underwater again. Okay, That's a promise. That's a covenant. So we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6 to Genesis 12. We pick up with Abram and Sarai. God shows up to this uh, elderly couple who can't have kids and says, if you'll go to a place you've never been, a place that I'll show you, I'll bless you. I'll make you the father of many nations, and I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, And so that covenant is, Abraham believed the promises of God. It changed his life. He, he and his elderly wife had a baby that became a whole family, that became a whole people group. And eventually there was a great famine that came in the land, and they found themselves down in Egypt, and they grew into such a great people that the Pharaoh rose up and said, these people are so strong, I need to enslave them or else they'll rise up against us. Or if we have a neighboring army who fights against us, they might join them and overtake us. And so that's what he did. And so they became slaves. And then after several years, a guy named Moses raises up to be the leader of Israel and lead them out of Egypt back to their home country, the land that God promised to Abraham. Okay? So by faith, Moses obeys the Lord, and he leads his people out of Egypt and out into the wilderness. And then Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai. God speaks to Moses and says, here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the Levitical law. So there's a promise that says, a man will be born from humanity. The world will never be destroyed like it was in, in, in the beginning, but there will be a day of judgment coming. And here's how you'll know it's him. He's going to live like this. He gave Moses the law that shows the people how they're sinful and how they need a savior. And so they set up a sacrificial system. They set up a high priest. It showed the people that they are disconnected from God, but they have a mediator through Moses and through a priest. And so they need to bring an animal in to be sacrificed every year on the Day of Atonement for the forgiveness of their sins for another year. And year to year, they would long for the one who would come, who would live by those Ten Commandments and, and the 614 laws and the Levitical law. He would accomplish that and fulfill that. So we're looking for a human being who uh, will, will not have to survive a great flood, and he will live like we see in, in this law, and he will also be an offspring of Abraham. He'll come from that family. So Moses leads the people back into their promised land. They dwell there, they settle there, and they become a nation, and they get a king. And then a king rises up named David, and God shows up with David and makes a covenant. It's called the Davidic covenant. And he says, through your bloodline specifically, a, a son will be born, and he will be the offspring. He'll be the one who receives the promise, who will fulfill the law that I had given to Moses that you guys are living by today. And then that person comes. His name is Jesus. 
Jesus lives the life that we fail to live by keeping all of the law. He dies the death that we uh, deserve to die, but his death is an atonement for our sin. He's a perfect sacrifice. He's the true and better lamb, unblemished, spotless, that is sacrificed for the sins of God's people, all of Old Testament Israel, all of the New Testament church. And so Jesus lives righteousness, dies to death, atoning for sin, raises from the dead to show that Satan's sin, death, and hell has been destroyed, ascends into heaven, and then sends his Holy Spirit to anyone who would believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead in our hearts and confess with our lips that he's the leader of our life. So he fulfilled the law, accomplished righteousness by faith, by believing that that's true. We get credit for all that Jesus has done right. He takes the blame for all that we have done wrong. And Holy Spirit dwells within us and gives us new desires. And so legally before God, we've gone from guilty to innocent by believing the promise of Jesus and Holy Spirit has lived in our life to give us new desires. So instead of being nice to people that we hate, we love people who aren't even nice to us. Instead of using people because we love money, we now have the capacity to use money to love people. Instead of using people to love sex, we use sex to love our spouse in a monogamous heterosexual marriage because that's in the law and that's the desires of our heart. And so we use money to love people. We use power to love people. We're Christians. We are for people. We don't need anything from anyone. We want things for others because we're in a covenant of grace with God. And so Paul now says, these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his offsprings. In other words, there's not several of us who are going to keep the law. There's one of us who is going to keep the law. And to your offspring, that's Christ. So that's Jesus. And this is what I mean. When Paul has to say, this is what I mean, it reminds me of when I go, does that make sense? And then I tell myself, you know it didn't or you wouldn't have asked. (laughs) So Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In other words, when God made a covenant with Moses, it didn't annul the covenant he made with Abraham. It built upon it. And the purpose of it was to bring into clarity our need for a Savior and the revelation of our sin. It's like any growing organization or any growing family. Like when when I first planted the church, it was just like me and Rob. And we could just go play golf and as for a staff meeting. And then we added more staff members. And it was like, oh, man, we should have a staff meeting where we get everybody at the same table because I told that person one thing and that person one thing. And then I read a book and changed my mind. And now everybody's mad at me. Why don't we just start writing things down? And how many of you, as you have a business and the business grows and it gets more complex, you have to start writing things down. And then you have rules and policies and all that sort of stuff. Well, as this family became a people group and became a nation, they had more official structure and they had policy and they had, this is the law. This is what morals look like. This is what righteousness looks like. And so the covenants build on each other and they give more clarity to that promise that God gave to Abraham. And so... There is a coming one who will fulfill the law by living up to it, who will fulfill and satisfy the wrath of God against sin by being sacrificed for us, and who will raise from the dead. Okay, So the covenants, the whole point of this section is to say, the covenants do not shift away from the power source being the promise of God and into our performance. In other words, like if we look into the Bible or look into the law and only see other people's sins and never see our own, it's not working rightly in our life. 
It should be like looking into a mirror and seeing like, I need to brush my hair. Like it's supposed to show us our blemishes, not show us like, you are amazing and awesome. You know, it's supposed to show us if we need, if we need help, we know it now because we looked into that and we can see it. So the whole point is that our performance is not enough. That's the whole point. Verse 19, Paul says, well, then why did God give us the law? It was added because of transgressions. Transgressions are sins. It's this idea that we've gone into a place we weren't supposed to go. We've crossed life-giving boundaries into the land of death. It's a sin. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What he's saying is, on Mount Sinai, when God was at the top of the mountain, with Moses at the top of the mountain, around all the angels is where this conversation took place. And God spoke to Israel through Moses. Moses was the intermediary of the law. Okay? Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So if the law was given for us to behave, then we would get it and go, oh, this is how I live now. What the law was given was to show us that no matter what we do, we cannot keep it. We can't live up to it. Sin is... It is by nature and by choice. A lot of us might think that sin was the magazine we found in our dad's gun cabinet and like, oh, I've seen that now. I've touched that now. I'm, now I'm sinful. But I'm telling you, the reason you found the magazine is because you're sinful. You're, we're sinners by nature and choice. Like I know our kids are cute. I'm not saying they're ugly, but they are also totally depraved. There's nothing more selfish than a two-year-old. They're cute. They're lovely. You know, I, I'm not saying they're like utterly bad, but they want it now. They, the reason God made babies little is because if they were our size, they would kill us all. <laughs> Brute strength. So the law is supposed to show us that we're sinners by our behaviors, but also by our attitudes and affections. It is our nature of who we are. We are not utterly depraved, which means we're only capable of doing evil, but we are totally depraved, which means even our morals are tainted by our evil and our sinful nature that we are the enemies of God. So this isn't about morality. This is about righteousness. And so this would be like good deeds or morals would be like someone who says, hey, I want to serve on hospitality today. <coughs> what do you want to do? I want to serve everyone coffee. <coughs> like, oh, okay. Well, your heart is in the right place, but you're going to get everybody sick. You're coughing on everything. So no matter how good your intentions are, they're stained by whatever it is you got going on today. And so when we do good deeds, we're still not able to move the needle from guilty to innocent. You can go from a bad deed to a good deed, but you can't make yourself innocent before God apart from believing the promise of God that he gave to Adam and Eve, that he gave to Abraham, that he gave to Moses, that he gave to David, and then it's been fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. So we're sinners by nature and choice. We're sinners by sins of commission. That's when we go too far. We're sinners by omission. That's when we don't go far enough. So commission are sins we commit. They're things we say, do, think, whatever that are just wrong. And then the scriptures tell us to know what is right and to fail to do that. That is also a sin. 
So we can sin by being lazy. We can sin by not doing what it is we know we're supposed to do. So why the law? It points to our sin. It should show us that I can't do this. I can't live up to this. That's why every year Israel would bring sacrifices to their priests because they knew that I've sinned and my sins are going to be metaphorically transferred to this animal. And the priest is going to give a blood offering to God and it will please God for another 365 days. And they would long for the Messiah who would be the true and better priest the true and better sacrifice, who would once and for all take away our sins, forgiving us for eternity. And it's a point to Jesus. So only Jesus accomplished righteousness by keeping the law. Only Jesus is the human being who's 100% God and 100% man. He's 100% God, which means his nature is not sinful. And he's 100% man, which means by choice, he never chose to sin. So only Jesus accomplished atonement by being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. No other life would have appeased the wrath of God against sinful man, only Jesus. And that is why faith alone and the work of Jesus alone is the only way to receive the promise of full acceptance into God's family and full forgiveness of our sins, to be saved from hell, saved to the church, and saved for the mission of Jesus. In other words, there's nothing we did that made us innocent. It wasn't through baptism, wasn't through communion, wasn't through speaking in tongues, it wasn't through being a church planner who can grow a church to 200 people. It's not anything we do that impresses the Lord. God is pleased with us when we look to Jesus and believe in our heart that he raised from the dead and confess with our lips that he's the leader of our life. It is by faith that we believe the promise, okay? Verse 23, now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So by now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so here's, let me pause there for a minute. It's hard to remember this, and if you're a recent Christian, you can remember your life before Holy Spirit came into your life. You can remember of life of trying to be nice to people you hate and all that sort of stuff. You can remember using people like you're, you know, it's, it's like you could do the right thing with a bad heart. Who knows what I'm talking about? You could do the moral thing with bad intentions. You can be totally uh, selfless with your action and self-absorbed with your intention of what you just had done. And so what Paul is saying, before Jesus came, before he ascended into heaven, before Peter got up and preached at the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, before we had these new desires, we needed to be told, hey, don't kill people. You know why? Because you're going to want to kill somebody. <laughs> don't sleep with the person you're not married to. You know why he told us that? Because you're going to want to sleep with someone that you're not married to. Before you become a Christian, you're pretty well just, these are my desires. Now there's societal expectations and there's like, I have a conscience, but it's not like Holy Spirit. It's more like a fake it till you make it. But when you become a Christian, Holy Spirit dwells in you and you have new desires and a new capacity. You actually want to be faithful to Jesus. So you feel this tension between this is what most pleases Jesus and I want to worship him. And this is what would most please me if I worship my desire in myself. And a Christian is someone who's not perfect. We trust in Jesus who is perfect. But we have new desires and we live every day trying to agree with God about what needs to change. So we're not a person who needs to be, and if you want to pray and say, Father, forgive me for this, forgive me for this every day, you can do that. But just know that you're forgiven if you're a Christian. 
It's eternal forgiveness, all sins, past, present, and future. But confession is the meat of the relationship because that's where we agree that there's change that needs to be taking place leading to repentance in my life so that I can be more and more like Jesus because that's where the joy is and that is where life is given, is inside of these boundaries. And so that's what Paul is saying. Before Jesus and Holy Spirit came, we needed this babysitter because we're all really bad. And it showed us, oh, you were bad. So we would give sacrifices because we were bad. And so then he goes on to say this, which plays really well on college campuses right now, or not, because it would take away all the pronouns and just give us one, okay? Verse 27 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, oh, I got ahead of myself, Hold that for verse 28. I'll be more offensive in just a minute. But right now, let me back up to verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So he's giving the, the, the heaviness, the weightiness of what baptism is really for. So this idea that a Christian is someone who believes in their heart that Jesus raised from the dead, confess with their lips that he's the leader of their life. Both of those things are faith in the heart leading to an agreement that I should change, which is repentance. Confession leading to repentance. And so this is important for you to know. So we love baptism at Grace Point Church. We can't wait to baptize. And maybe you've wondered why I'll say, if you've just become a Christian, your first step is not communion. Your first step is baptism. We don't believe that baptism saves you, but we believe baptism is an important thing in your life where you can walk around now saying, I'm a Christian because there was a church who baptized me. Let me take us back into church history for just a minute. So baptism is not merely a Christian's way to express themselves to say to everybody, I'm a Christian. There's that certainly at least that. But what would happen is like it would just be it wouldn't be a biblical baptism if you went on a fishing trip with your uncle and uh, he's not a member of a church and it's outside of a church and you're, you know, talking about spiritual things and he leads you to Jesus. That's awesome. And then he's like, I'll just baptize you right now. Like but we're, we're, we're our own church. Like, you, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Who's your uncle? Like, what? That, maybe you had a meaningful family moment. Maybe that was a spiritual moment. But here's what baptism is supposed to look like. God made apostles. Jesus gave apostles authority over the church and elders over the church and people who knew that we're to faith and repent, faith in Jesus, and it should change our lives. And baptism is this marker where you know that if someone has said, I want to be a Christian, there was someone connected to the church who said, well, let me have a conversation with you. Tell me what happened. And you could look for faith and repentance. And when you see faith and repentance, you go, we'll baptize you. And then you could go around saying, I'm a Christian. And then you could go gather with the church and take the Lord's Supper. It's not like we're saying, oh, you're not really a Christian unless you've been baptized at Grace Point. It's us being able to say, there's lots of people who think they're Christians who aren't Christians. Lots of people do that. We all did that probably before we became Christians. Because sometimes people think a Christian is someone who gets it right all the time. And we have thought that we're getting it right all the time because we can always look at old Charlie or look at old Janice or whoever and go like, well, they run around on people. I've never done that. And that person can't keep a job, but I got a job for years or whatever. We, that's how bad we are. We look at people. We compare ourselves to everyone else instead of Jesus. So some people think they're Christians because they're more moral than other people. But that don't make you innocent before God. You need someone who has faith and repentance in their life, who's heard your story, seen you respond to the gospel and say, yeah, you faith in Jesus and you've changed. You're repenting of your sin. And it's a process. You're not perfect, but you're resting in the work of Jesus, and he's perfect. And that's your baptism. Then you get baptized, and it's the church saying, yeah, you're in. You're totally in. Okay? 
doesn't mean you weren't a Christian yet. It's just them affirming that, yes, you are. Okay, So it's not merely us expressing ourselves. It's also the church saying, yeah, you should call yourself a Christian now. Okay, So he said, if that's you, you've put on Christ. You have new desires. You don't need to look to circumcision for your righteousness. You don't need to look to Lord's Supper for your righteousness or setting out chairs at the church. Do that stuff because that's what we do to worship Jesus. But look to Jesus for your righteousness. Because he says, now there's no Jew or Greek. This is where we get to the pronouns and the offensive stuff. Okay, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that sounds real great for gender confusion and all that sort of stuff. You can hijack that verse and make it say whatever you want. But you probably don't want to because you want all the pronouns instead of just one pronoun in Christ. But here's the deal. This is not about gender neutrality. This is not about gender roles going away. This is not about taking away cultural diversity. Do not take away my restaurants. I love culture. I love music, but I love food. And I think that we should have burritos. We should have sweet and sour chicken. I think that we should have, you know, marsala. You know, you're not getting this. We should have barbecue. Like, we need diversity. Paul's not saying you're going to eat ramen noodles every day now because there's no Jew or Greek and no diversity. And don't call yourself he, she, him, her, whatever, because you're just one. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there is no superior or inferior. There is no superior race and inferior race. There is no superior man and inferior woman. There is no superior woman and inferior man. What he's saying is your deepest identity does not come from being male or female or where you were born or if you grew up Jewish and these Gentile knuckleheads didn't. Your deepest identity comes from the person and work of Jesus. It's not your political party. It's not your place of origin. It's not the last name on your jersey. It is Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God against your sin. Only Jesus raised from the dead. And he says, and you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's what Christianity is all about. There's no superior Christian. There's no inferior Christian. Our ultimate identity does not come from culture. It comes from Christ. That being said, Adam and Eve, they need Jesus Adam and Eve could run around in the garden. God said, y'all can run around naked if you want to, and it won't be weird. They ruined naked time for all of us. <laughs> right away, they sinned. They realized they were naked. They're like, well, this is awkward. They're hiding in the weeds. You know, God's like, what are y'all doing over there in the, you know, in the timber? Well, we hid from you because we were naked. It's like, well, who told you you were naked? Adam's like, gosh. So they come out. God talks to them, and he promises a son will be born. Who will defeat the enemy who deceived you? They need Jesus. Adam and Eve are not the heroes of the story. Jesus is the hero of story. We rock along to Noah. Noah builds this great ship. He's a dude who believes God. He, the ship parks on land. The mud becomes soil. He tills up the soil. He makes a vineyard. He turns the grapes into wine. He drinks a lot of wine. He passes out drunk naked inside his tent. His kids do something to him so bad the Bible will not say it by name. We do not know what it was. I don't want to know what it was, okay? And... Noah needs Jesus. Noah's not the hero of Noah's ark. Jesus is the hero of Noah's ark. God makes a promise to Abraham, says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He's like, well, that must mean we're going to have a kid, but we're almost 100 now, Sarah. I don't know what we're going to do. I know there's that gal that works for you named Hagar. How about I sleep with her? Sarah's like, I guess. Fellas, I guess always means no. 
It always means no. So he's like, well, she said, yeah. So he sleeps with Hagar. Hagar gives him a son named Ishmael. God's like, oh, that, not like that. Mm. Causes lots of problems. So they're like, hey, polygamy's in the Bible. Yeah, but never is a good idea, okay? It's always a bad idea. Abraham would make boneheaded moves. He, his, Sarah was beautiful, and he would go into a country, and a king would notice her, and he'd be like, that's my sister, that's my sister, don't kill me. You can have her. God's like, you fool. Abraham needs Jesus. Moses shows up. God makes a promise through Moses. Moses is just, he's angry, has anger issues. He just loses his cool. There's like, you know, fist prints in his walls of his tents where he's lived. And God says, hey, speak to the, wall, to the rock. He's, and he just starts beating the tar out of the rock. God's like, well, you're not going into the promised land now. And so Moses needs Jesus. David has the law that says, don't sleep with people you're not married to and don't kill anybody. David doubles down and does both of them in the same weekend. <laughs> but he's known as a man after God's own heart. My point is not to to rub those names through the mud, but my point is if you grew up or if you had a hint in your heart that thought there's moral stories in each of these stories and I need to be like David or I need to be like Abraham or I need to be like Moses. No, you don't. You need to see yourself in their life that they are sin-filled people who need a savior, that God is working in their life in spite of their brokenness, fulfilling the promises that he's made, that he's going to take away the sins of the world and make a people through it for himself through the person of Jesus. You need Jesus. Right. You do not need three things to do today to go feel superior to other people because Paul said there is no superior. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no male or female. There's no slave or free. We're all one in Jesus, meaning our deepest identity is in him. We need Jesus. Jesus. How do we get Jesus? By believing in our heart that he raised from the dead and confessing with our lips that he is the Lord of our lives.